0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Tonight's passage is Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it in tar and pitch. Then she hid the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. And he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them.
1: Uh, Brothers and sisters, let's pray as we come to God's word. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that this afternoon uh, you would really, by the power of your Spirit, give us all the help that we need. Uh, Please help me, I sure need it. Uh, Help me to speak faithfully and and clearly, as I should. Uh, Help us all, Father, uh, to hear your word, uh, to trust it, to obey it, uh, to be changed by it, uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I wonder what you do when you feel like the darkness in life is really closing in and when you feel like evil is prevailing on every side. Or What do you do when you feel so completely hopeless uh, that you just think, oh, I'm just going to ca- throw in the towel? Or what do you do in those moments? That's the sort of moment that's confronting the Israelites at the start of Exodus chapter 2. You remember last week in Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites had been enslaved, they were being ruthlessly oppressed, they were being beaten, and by the end of Exodus chapter 1, they were victims of Pharaoh's evil plan of state-sponsored genocide. This is a horribly dark time for God's people. Israelite women, who perhaps had previously run a profitable business in Egypt, uh, with their husbands, maybe contracting out shepherds for the Egyptians to use. Uh, those women are, are now forced to, to labour in the fields all day, are beaten whenever they don't keep up with the pace. Uh, Israelite men who, who had previously held uh, influential and, and respectable positions in society uh, are now enslaved and denigrated and humiliated uh, simply because of their religious and ethnic background. Israelite fathers watch their wives go off to the delivery room, are wondering if the child she's been carrying for nine months is going to be a son. A son who, by according to the Egyptian authorities, has to be thrown, has to be drowned in the River Nile. Israelite mothers weep and wail in grief. When they discover that their child is indeed a son, And they face the prospect of trying to hide him, that he might might avoid being discovered and killed. This is a horribly dark time for God's people. A time when evil seems to be prevailing. A time when they must have been asking themselves, what on earth is God doing? Why is God silent? Why isn't he doing something? Has God forgotten us? I said, what is Israel to do? God's message to Israel in Exodus chapter 2, in the midst of all the evil and hopelessness and darkness, is don't lose heart. Don't give up on me. For I have provided and prepared a redeemer for you. And my redemption of you is at hand. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't quit on me. For I have provided and prepared a redeemer for you. And my redemption of you is at hand. So in verses 1 to 10, let's look first at how God has provided a redeemer for his people. In these 10 verses, there's at least five things that I want to draw out that show us that this child who's born is a special child in the plans and purposes of God to be used to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. So first, if you look at verse 1 there, notice the tribe that the child is born into. Look at verse 1 with me. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman a woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Oh, we've already seen in Exodus uh, that Moses is very careful, very deliberate uh, about who he does and doesn't name. You remember in chapter one, uh, he deliberately chose not to name uh, the Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, uh, but he did name Shiphrah and Pua, the, those Hebrew midwives. Likewise here, it's no accident Uh, that that Moses' parents aren't named here. Uh, In fact, they're not named in the story of Exodus uh, until a genealogy in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, There we do learn that Moses' father was named Amram, uh, and his mother's name was Jochebed. Uh, But that's not important here, right? The focus of the narrative here is this child who's born, and in particular, the tribe that the child is born into, the tribe of Levi. And if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, uh, later on in Exodus, the tribe of Levi becomes a tribe of priests, right? a tribe of people uh, whose job it is, whose role it is to mediate between God and his people. Uh, they do that by, by teaching God's law uh, and by overseeing the, the whole system of sacrifices that was established by God's law. Uh, that, that enabled God in his glorious presence to dwell with his people. And, of course, Moses, as the one who receives God's law on Mount Sinai, as the one who institutes that whole system of sacrifices, is like the original priest of Levi, the original kind of mediator between God and his people. This child is incredibly significant in the plans and purposes of God. And the focus is on this child right from the start of this chapter. And yet, despite that, uh, we don't want to lose sight of the incredibly bold faith that this child's parents show. And uh, not unlike the faith of Shipra and Pu'ah in Exodus 1. Uh, his parents knew that, uh, that humanly speaking, their lives and their son's life uh, were in the hands of Pharaoh. Uh, he could f- discover their son and them and destroy them at any minute. Uh, and yet they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. So they acted in obedience to their God. So that's the first thing. This child is born into the tribe of Levi, the original priest, the original mediator between God and his people. The second thing, notice in verse 2, what the mother notices about her child. Look at verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And now at first, this is a little bit strange. I don't know. If, I've always thought when reading this passage, kind of like, so, so Moses' mom notices that her son's particularly good looking, particularly handsome, uh, and so she decides to hide him for three months rather than chucking him in the river straight away. Like, like what's with that? Surely every Israelite mother thought that their child was a fine child, a handsome child. Uh, that's how most of the Bible translations take it. But actually, that that Hebrew word uh, that's translated as fine there is actually the Hebrew word good. It's the same word that's used repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates things uh, and then he sees them and sees that they are good. It's like God's creating his creation, that's a fine creation, a fine tree, a fine sun, a fine moon. He sees that it is good. So in Exodus Exodus 1... You might remember that we had a connection to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God commanded humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what the Israelites were doing in Egypt, right? They were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land of Egypt, So God, this is what's being said in in the book of Exodus. God, uh, through Israel, through Abraham and his descendants, uh, is actually bringing about a new humanity for a new creation. And that kind of theme continues here at the start of Exodus 2. Uh, For Moses' mother sees the child and sees that he is good. Think Genesis 1. And God saw that it was good. The point being that the God is going to bring about this new humanity for a new creation in and through this child, the redeemer who he's provided for his people. And maybe some of you say, well, that's just all a little bit speculative. But actually, the the connections between this child and a new beginning and the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11, they continue in verses 3 and 4. And where we notice there, uh, what the child is placed in. Uh, Look at verse 3. But when uh, Moses' mother could hide him no longer, uh, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Uh, Then she placed the child in it uh, and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile River. Uh, His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, like my Bible, uh, your Bible probably has a footnote there next to the word basket, telling you uh, that it's actually the Hebrew word ark. Uh, so we're supposed to think, wait a second, I, I know another story in the Bible uh, where someone went into an ark that was covered in tar, uh, and they avoided being destroyed in water. Right? This child, uh, this child is another Noah. Remember the story of Noah and his family in Genesis, starting in Genesis six. Uh, Noah and his family. God kind of brought about a new humanity, as it were, through Noah and his family who avoided watery destruction in a tar-covered ark. Likewise, that's what's happening with this child. The God's going to bring about his new humanity through this child who avoids watery destruction in the Nile uh, in this tar-covered ark. This child is incredibly significant in God's purposes. He's the redeemer that God has provided for his people. This child who's placed among the reeds uh, along the bank of the Nile River will one day lead his people through the Red Sea, literally in Hebrew, the Sea of Reeds. There's all these hints in these verses uh, that this child is incredibly significant. Uh, So it makes sense in verses five to nine Uh, that God does everything he can to protect and care for this redeemer that he's provided. Uh, We mustn't forget uh, that this child really is in grave danger, isn't he? He's born in the midst of of Pharaoh's state-sponsored plan of genocide, that every Hebrew boy who is born must be drowned in the River Nile. He's in massive danger. Uh, But in verses five to nine, it's clear that that even though God's not explicitly mentioned in in these verses, uh, he's at work behind the scenes orchestrating everything that this child might be protected and cared for. Uh, Even though Pharaoh and his daughter uh, have immense power in Egypt, uh, it's clear that God is absolutely sovereign over them, Right? that they're unwittingly playing their role in his plan. He's using them to work out his purposes through Moses. God's sovereign plan is carried forward with his absolutely perfect knowledge. If you consider the, just these verses, uh, consider the fact uh, that God knew that Moses' sister would be watching from a distance. He knew exactly how long Moses' parents would be able to hide him in their house. He knew exactly when they would need to put him in that basket in the river. He knew exactly where they would put him in the basket in the river. He knew exactly where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe. He knew exactly when Pharaoh's daughter would bathe. He knew that Moses' sister would be there and would be able to, to suggest to Pharaoh's daughter? Uh, why don't you get one of the Hebrew mothers to nurse the child? God knew all that. God ensured that Pharaoh's daughter's heart would be filled with compassion for the child, uh, even though her father wanted the child killed. God knew all that. God knew uh, that, that Pharaoh's daughter would offer to pay Moses's mum to nurse her own son, what must have been a massive financial blessing for Moses's family. God knew that. God knew that Moses needed to enjoy all the benefits of growing up in Pharaoh's household, Uh, one of which in in particular was the benefit of of, of, uh, learning all the Egyptian skills in handwriting, which he would later uh, use to write down this very account. God is absolutely sovereign God is executing his sovereign plan with perfect knowledge of everyone and everything. God has provided a redeemer for his people. And in these verses, he's orchestrating everything from behind the scenes to protect and care for his redeemer. And that might invite and that might remind you of another redeemer in the Bible. The ultimate redeemer. Remember, Jesus Jesus also born in the midst of another evil ruler's plan of genocide. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 2. King Herod decreeing that every baby boy in Bethlehem and surrounds must be killed. Once again, God protects and cares for the redeemer he's provided. At this time, maybe ironically, by instructing Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt. My God has provided a redeemer for his people, uh, and he protects and cares for that redeemer. Uh, finally, in verse 10, uh, we notice what Pharaoh's daughter names this child. Verse 10, when the child grew older, uh, she took him uh, to Fa- uh, yeah, she, that's Moses' mother, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Uh, this isn't the focus here, but focus here. But we really should just take a moment uh, to con- contemplate the the incredible heartache that Moses's mum must have experienced in this moment. Oh, sure, no doubt she's thankful. You know, she she wasn't sure if her son would live, uh, and he's still alive. She certainly didn't think she'd have the chance to nurse him as she has. No doubt she's thankful. But imagine the heartache uh, of having to just give over your own son to Pharaoh's daughter like this. But she does. She knows that's what she must do. And Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I think this child who was drawn out of the waters of the River Nile would one day draw God's people out of their slavery in Egypt. In this child, God has provided a redeemer for his people. So even though the darkness seems to be closing in and the evil plans of Pharaoh seem to be prevailing and everything seems completely hopeless, they don't need to lose heart for God has provided a redeemer for them. And in verses, from verses 11 to 22, God prepares his redeemer, Moses, to act as the redeemer of his people. Look in verse 11, it starts by saying, one day after Moses had grown up. And so we're sort of reading through this, we're kind of like, well, how much has Moses grown up? How old is Moses at this stage? And the text here doesn't tell us, but we get a, a kind of a, some information from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 23. And there Stephen tells us that Moses is 40 years old when these events happen. So once again, well, we've got this parallel to Jesus, don't we? If you're reading the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, uh, you get a whole a fair bit of detail uh, about Jesus' birth, uh, and then you skip uh, straight to the start of his public ministry with, with almost no information of what happens in between, except for maybe a story or two, right? Same with Moses. This is another parallel between Moses and Jesus, Uh, God has provided a redeemer for his people in Moses. Uh, So in verses 12 to 22, God uh, takes Moses through a whole series of events designed to prepare him to act as the redeemer of his people. Uh, It's unclear in the text, uh, but probably these events occur over a period of about 40 years. Uh, We know that because uh, in Exodus 7 verse 7, we're told that Moses is 80 years old by the time he actually goes to speak with Pharaoh. So these events occur uh, over about 40 years. So what are these events that prepare Moses? Uh, Well, first look at verse 11. Uh, Moses sees the suffering of God's people. Verse 11, Moses went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So twice in this verse, we're told that that Moses is watching his own people here. He's watching God's people. And he sees one of the Egyptian slave masters beating their Hebrew slave. And God wants him to see that but because God wants him to see his people as he sees them we know that because down in verse 25, we're told that God sees his people. God looks on the suffering of his people. He's concerned about them. And so he acts on their behalf. And that word look in verse 25 is the same as the word see about Moses in verse 11. God wants Moses to see the suffering of his people, to be concerned about the suffering of his people, and therefore to act on their behalf. And that's what he does. In verse 12, uh, Moses acts as a judge and redeemer uh, of God's people. Verse 12, looking this way and that, uh, and seeing no one, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You know, if you've just read, read verses 1 to 10, this is a bit of a shock, isn't it? We've kind of got great hopes of this child that's been born, and yet here he goes and just openly murders an Egyptian. And yet, from a certain perspective, uh, there's something kind of right about what Moses does here. Not that it's right to murder someone, uh, but he is God's chosen servant uh, through whom one day God will bring judgment on the Egyptians. And redemption to his own people. Moses doesn't understand all that. And he also needs to understand that as God's judge and redeemer, he has to bring that judgment and redemption in God's ways. Not in the ways of the Egyptians, who are all about power and oppression and control and violence. But in God's ways. In God's power. In God's timing. Not by taking matters into his own hands like this. So in verses 13 and 14, Moses is rejected as God's judge and redeemer. Let's read those verses. The next day, Moses went out and, and saw two Hebrews fighting one another. Uh, he asked the one in the wrong, uh, why are you hitting? Right? Why are you beating, literally, beating your fellow Hebrew? But Moses is kind of like, it's one thing for the Egyptians to beat us, but let's not go around beating one another. He's got a point. But in verse 14, that the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Right? Moses is rejected by his own people as God's judge and redeemer. And isn't as much, uh, perhaps he's rightly rejected here. He has taken matters into his own hands, done things in the wrong way. Uh, this does prepare Moses for what's to come. Uh, over the, the next however many years, Moses' leadership is going to be continually questioned. They're going to grumble against his leadership. Uh, sometimes the, the people of God are going to outright rebel against his leadership. Uh, this is real preparation for what's to come. And it's also another parallel between Moses and Jesus. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus came to his own people, didn't he? He came to the Jews. And yet his own people did not recognize him. In fact, they rejected him and ultimately had him crucified on the cross. Oh, so in verse 15, Moses, you know, he's been rejected by his people, his fears being killed by Pharaoh. And so he flees Egypt. Uh, into, the, into the area of Midian, uh, which is in the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai. Look in verse 15, when Pharaoh uh, heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, uh, but Moses fled from Pharaoh uh, and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. God is wonderfully gracious. Right here, he's even using Moses' fleeing after his sin of murder. But God is using that to prepare Moses for his future ministry. For Moses, who in this moment flees from Egypt to take refuge in the wilderness of Midian on the way to Mount Sinai, will one day lead all of God's people in fleeing Egypt into this same wilderness on the way, on their way to Mount Sinai. This is God's preparation of Moses. And it continues in verses 16 and 17, uh, where Moses acts as a saviour and shepherd for some Midianites. And now a priest of Midian, we're told, verse 16, had seven daughters. Now that's a big load for him, seven daughters. Uh, And they came to draw water and fill uh, the troughs of water for uh, for their father's flock. Uh, some shepherds came along uh, and drove them away. Uh, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Well, so simply, in brief, Moses, who's one day going to act uh, as the saviour and shepherd for all of God's people, uh, here has the experience of acting as the saviour and shepherd uh, for these Midianites, right? for his future wife Zipporah uh, and her sisters. Finally, in this initial preparation phase, in verses 18 to 22, we see that Moses finds a home, but he realises that he's homeless, right? He finds a home, but he realises that he's homeless. In some ways, Moses is a lot like lots of people today. He has these big identity questions. Who am I? What what am I here for? What's what's life all about? What's my purpose in life? If you think about Moses' experience, he's been rejected by the Egyptians, right the country he was raised in. He's been rejected by the Israelites, the the, the people of his birth. Uh, and now he's been welcomed in by the Midianites. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, it seems like he's found a home with the Midianites. He's married Zipporah. Uh, they've had their first son named Gershon. Uh, but it still dawns on Moses in verse 22. Uh, that his true home is not in Egypt or with the Midianites. But yeah, as the name of his son, Gershon, says, uh, Moses is a foreigner in a foreign land. Right? Sure, Moses has spent his whole life in Egypt, and the Midianites have been very welcoming. Uh, but this is not his true home. The reality is he's just passing through these places, sojourning in them. Right? He's a, a pilgrim in these places on his way to his true home. Uh, which is with his God in the land that God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Uh, And soon Moses is going to realize that that's true of all of God's people. Egypt is not their home. Uh, They're just passing through Egypt uh, and God is going to use him uh, to bring them out of Egypt uh, and bring them into the homeland that God promised them. What do we learn? We learn that when the darkness is closing in, when when, uh, the, the plans of evil rulers seem to be prevailing on every side, when everything seems completely hopeless, we must not lose heart. For God has provided and prepared a redeemer for his people. Because verses 23 to 25, God's redemption of his people is at hand. Look at verse 23, where we see there that while Moses has been away in Midian, probably for about 40 years, a new king has come to power in Egypt, but God's people are experiencing the same old slavery. And God's people are groaning out in the midst of their suffering, crying out for someone to help them, not necessarily crying out to God, but they are crying out for help. And we're told in verses 24 and 25 that God hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant and he looks on them with concern in their suffering. Right? God's redemption of his people is at hand. It's imminent. It's it's about to happen. He's about to do something decisive to, to bring his people out of Egypt uh, in and through Moses, the redeemer who he's provided and prepared. And why is God going to take this action? Well, we're told here it's because he remembers his covenant, right? God remembers his binding promises to his people, the promises he first made to Abraham and then reaffirmed to both Isaac and Jacob. You see what's going on here? God is going to fulfill these promises, not because of the good character of his people, But because of his good character, through these binding promises, uh, God has nailed his colours to the mast, as it were. Uh, And God will always, he will demonstrate once and for all uh, that he's the God who makes promises and keeps them. uh, That he's the God who is faithful to his promises, even if his people are unfaithful. Uh, Incidentally, it's not that God forgot about his promises. He's not kind of there going, oh, wait a second, I forgot about those promises I made to Abraham and to that little people down in Egypt. I better pick up the ball with that. No, uh, this is saying that the God in remembering his covenant uh, is bringing to mind those promises because he's about to act. He's about to fulfill those promises uh, in a new and fresh way, a new stage of those promises. So what's God's message to his people in Exodus 2? His message is, I know it seems dark. I know it seems like evil's going to win. I know it seems completely hopeless. But don't lose heart. For I have provided and prepared a redeemer for my people. And my redemption of you is at hand. Now, of course, as we've worked through Exodus 2, we have seen a number of parallels between Moses and Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate redeemer, the greater Moses. And through Jesus, God has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Right, just as the Israelites uh, cried out to God and groaned under the oppressive weight of their slavery, God has heard our cries under the oppressive slavery uh, of sin uh, and through Christ has redeemed us. So, right, not uh, from this political slavery like the Israelites, but from spiritual slavery. John 8, verse 34. John 8, verse 34 Jesus says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We're slaves to sin in that as hard as we might try, none of us can stop sinning. You think about your own life. None of us can do all the good that we would like to do, let alone all the good that God wants us to do. There's always imperfections and failures and sometimes just outright rebellion. In In that sense, we're mastered and controlled and enslaved by sin, where we just can't throw off the chains of sin. And as we keep sinning, the Bible says every time we sin, it adds a little bit of debt to our account with God. So that over the years, where we've accumulated this massive debt that we owe God. And some of you feel that deeply. You feel it very acutely. And so you spend your whole life literally trying to redeem yourself in some way. You hope that by the end of your life, somehow, you've managed to balance out the books with God. Somehow, you've managed to pay off all your debts with God. But the reality is that won't work. There's no way you can redeem yourself. Because over the years, the debt that that you owe God has gotten so big. The the, the price of that debt, the price of continually rejecting God, the source of all life, the price of that debt is death. That's the debt that we owe God. We owe God our lives. So what do we do? Well, we praise God. We praise God because God has provided a redeemer for us in Christ. Uh, A Redeemer uh, who pays all of God's debt, all of our debts in our place on the cross, uh, who sets us free from slavery to sin, uh, for he has paid God's just penalty for sin. That's why in John 19, verse 30, right before he dies, Jesus cries out, It is finished. That word finished has the sense of every obligation has been met, every single debt has been paid. Jesus knew that through his death on the cross, he was paying off all our spiritual debts, so that those who have faith in him, in his death on the cross, can be set free from their slavery to sin, set free from the power of sin, uh, because in Jesus, God's just penalty for sin has been fully and finally paid. I've said this before, some of you have heard it, that the last words of Buddha, it's well attested, were strive without ceasing. Never give up on trying to redeem yourself, improve yourself. The last words of Jesus were, I've done all the striving for you. I've paid off every single debt in your place. So the message of Christianity is stop striving to try and redeem yourself through your own works. And simply trust in Jesus and his finished work of redemption on the cross. God in Christ has provided a redeemer for us. A redeemer who sets us free from slavery to sin, from the power of sin. For in his death, he paid God's just penalty for sin. So don't lose heart. Uh, For God has provided a redeemer for us, and don't lose heart, uh, even when you're groaning uh, under the weight of all the brokenness of our world, uh, because God has provided a redeemer for us who will one day redeem us from all this brokenness, from all the mess of this world. Romans 8 verses 22 and 23, Paul says, uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Like the Israelites in Egypt, we groan as we carry the burden of all the brokenness of this world. We groan under the burden of our sickness, don't we? Under the burden of chronic pain and disease of deep depression, uh, of acute anxiety. We groan uh, under the weight of physical and emotional disabilities. We we groan uh, under the weight of cancer and heart disease and global pandemics. We we groan under the weight of sickness. We groan under the weight of sadness, uh, under the weight of broken marriages uh, and children uh, who who, uh, have rejected us. We groan under the weight of losing a child that we were never able to meet, who died, uh, never able to meet. Uh, they died before that was able to happen. We groan under the weight of sadness. We groan uh, under the weight uh, of suffering that we experience for the sake of Christ. Some of you feel this more acutely than others. Uh, the loss of dear family and dear friends. Uh, the loss of uh, income uh, because you didn't get that job or that promotion because you were a Christian. You groan under the weight of that suffering. We groan uh, under the weight of our sin. For even though Christ has paid the penalty for our sin and set us free from the power of sin, we're no longer slaves to sin. Man, we long to to be free from the presence of sin. It's right for us to groan about these things. For this world is not our home. Like Moses in Midian in Egypt, this world is not our home. We're, We're just passing through this world. It's right for us to groan, but we must not lose heart. For God in Christ has provided a redeemer for us who will one day lead us through this world to our true home, our ultimate home, which is with God and his people forever. In a world where there's no more sickness and suffering and sadness and sin. When darkness seems to be closing in in your life, when evil seems to be prevailing on every side, when when you get to the point where things just seem utterly hopeless and you just want to throw in the towel. Let me urge you today, do not give up, do not lose heart, do not throw in the towel on the Christian faith. For in Christ, God has provided a redeemer for us, a redeemer who has redeemed us from slavery to sin and a redeemer who will redeem us from all the brokenness of this world please pray with me our uh, gracious father we thank you for this your word uh, we thank you that there is indeed a redeemer uh, we praise you for our lord jesus uh, through whom through faith in him we we know that, that we can be uh, redeemed from slavery to sin uh, for in his death on the cross he paid your just penalty for sin We praise you for the deep assurance uh, that one day Jesus will redeem us from all the brokenness of this world. Uh, And we long for that day, uh, for that day when we can uh, finish our pilgrim journey in this world uh, and be in our true home uh, with you, our God, uh, and your people forever. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.